0: We're going to talk about the wrath of God today. Great drawing card, right? You all wanted to hear about this. <laughs> Aunt Alice told me when I came in that if I just said something bad about God today, she was going to say something good about Him. <laughs> and I told her that I said, You know me better than that. <laughs> Uh, last time I was here, I talked about the covenants, and I, I offered a new hermeneutic for reading the Old Testament. Today, we're going to look at that hermeneutic through the lens of God's wrath. Uh, this is the lens now that I am using in all my classes and with great success. Uh, I've never had such student engagement as I have had with this particular hermeneutic. And uh, I have one student who's begging me, you've got to get your book done <laughs> I want it now. Uh and and it's just it's been really helpful and two of my theology majors told me that the greatest hindrance of their generation to uh being engaged with God is the old testament God. Mm-hmm. This is a major, major issue in among young people today and uh, so I felt like this is very kindly. So just a review of of the hermeneutic uh, I hold that two voices, and this is, by the way, canonical criticism, which is a uh, an acceptable way of looking at Scripture. Um, it has not had uh, a lot of refinement, shall I say, a lot of uh, really careful methodological work on it. It's been done a bit sloppily. I'm hoping to correct that by having carefully set criteria. Uh, but basically, I hold that two voices exist in the Old Testament: the minor voice of God's preferred will, and the major voice of God's will adapted or acquiesced to the will of the people. And the place where this works the best and the easiest is kingship uh, hierarchy, because if you go, if, if you look at the Bible in a canonical order it's very clear that kingship is not God's ideal or preferred will. And he actually acquiesces to the will of the people in 1 Samuel 8. So here's my criteria. A passage reflects the major voice if it dominates the whole of the Old Testament or seems in harmony with prevailing views throughout the ancient Near East or reflects prevailing practices but with improvements made on them or comes later or secondarily in a narrative sequence after the minor voice has been heard or is later corrected by a prophetic voice or by Jesus or becomes the minor or less dominant voice in the New Testament. These are kind of default criteria because I established the the minor voice criteria first and I, I worked off of that criteria to develop the major voice. Here's the minor voice. It, it's a, a passage reflects the minor voice if it lies first in a narrative sequence. Uh, I, you know, if I italicize first, that's because last time I didn't and everybody missed the word. But what I'm talking about here is a narrative sequence, like say kingship. In the larger scheme of things, where does hierarchy fall? What it what is said about it early on? And my contention is that early on in, in creation, there is no kingship except over nature. Uh, that we are to have dominion over the natural world. Of course, that, you have to pronounce that very carefully and keep in mind that Hebrew words have many ranges of meaning. Uh, and, and so there's more of a spectrum of meaning in Hebrew words than there is a single definition. And the, the spectrum of meaning and dominion includes uh, taking care of and, and providing nurture and so on. So what we have is not ruling over one another, not human beings ruling over one another, but human beings ruling over nature. And that's God's preferred voice. Uh, if you follow the narrative along, there's a lot of um, subtle hotshots <laughs> in the Old Testament against hierarchy. And then you hit First Samuel 8 where hierarchy is in, embraced by Israel. They want to have a king, uh, and God uh, says they rejected me from being king over them. So that's just an example, lying first in the narrative sequence. <clears throat> We're going to come to that in terms of God's wrath. Um, and so it reflects the mind of voice, if it is tied to creation and a world that is good, if it is unique to Israel, these a vis the other nation, if it comes from the prophetic voice that stands against the norm, is a part of trajectory that corrects an earlier belief or practice, or reaches its denouement and finds fullest expression in the life, death, and teachings of Jesus. Those are my criteria for the minor voice, and it can be any one of those that gives me the indication that I'm dealing with the minor voice. Now, divine anger in the Old Testament. In the narrative, the greater narrative of the Old Testament, God is not angry once in Genesis. That may surprise you, and it surprises my students. I ask them, where is God angry in, in Genesis? And they all tell me when the, with a the flood. So I take them there. and go to Genesis 6, and it says that God is grieved in his heart. It doesn't say every, anywhere that he is angry. Um, they tell me it's in Sodom and Gomorrah, so we go there. It doesn't say that God is angry. And so I I actually offered extra credit to anyone who can find God's wrath in the book of Genesis. I never had anybody take me up on it. This is a book that is tied to creation and the meta-beginning of the larger canonical narrative. And in canonical criticism, I pay attention to actually the the order in which you have something, as both historically, uh, but not historically in the sense of when it came to be written. I, I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned in terms of where God is positioned in the text. And this comes out of my recognition that when we raise questions about what do we do with the angry God of the Old Testament, we are raising a question of theology, and theology can only be, uh, be dealt with, really, if we recognize that our question
1: means that we're
0: viewing uh, the Bible and Scripture, not just as another ancient Near Eastern book. I could solve this same problem if we dealt with it as another ancient Near Eastern book by simply saying, you know, this is the way the ancient Near Eastern people saw God, and we could all go home, and it would be the end of the story. But when we raise that question, when we're troubled by the wrath of God, it is because we are viewing the Bible as sacred text. And therefore, we need to deal with it that way. So, in the flood, I, I have all these uh, examples here. It doesn't mean anger anger is absent in Genesis. As you can see from this down here, uh, a lot of people are angry in Genesis. <laughs>
1: I'm not sure that it helps me that much to know that I was angry when you wiped out here.
0: There's a part two there's another chapter in my book that deals with that issue. I can't deal with everything today. Yeah, I, I hear you. I'm so sorry I have to show you whack.
1: <laughs>
0: I totally get that. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: if my mother had done that as a child, I would have grown up thinking I was abused. I did that all the gonna hurt me a lot more than
1: it's going you. believe believed him, right? After <laughs> <laughs>
0: The one possible place where anger may be inferred is the reference in Genesis eight twenty one. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing order of Noah's burnt offerings, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from the youth, nor will I ever again destroy ever leaving creature as I have done. This has been thought to imply appeasement. He smelled the pleasing order, and then he said I will never again come apply. But the problem is, you look at what God says here. Because of humankind for the inclination of the human heart is evil from their youth, what is it about Noah's sacrifice that gives him that idea? Well, Noah, Noah comes out of the ark and immediately starts killing animals. And and when God says a few verses later, uh, the fear of animals will be upon (laughs) you. Well, can you realize he's been their caregiver in that ark for the last how many months? And then he starts killing them before all their peers' eyes. Um, And it's obvious they're going to be afraid of him. What else could that be? And it seems to me that it's Noah's maybe attempt to appease God that God sees as this it's a carryover of the violence that leads to the flood. Just a thought. The first canonical mention of a divine anger is against Moses in Exodus 4:13 4, and 14, at the end of a long dialogue where Moses protests his divinely appointed assignment. He said, "Oh my Lord, please send someone else." Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, What of your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he can speak fluently. Even now, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, his heart will be glad. What is God doing when he gets angry? He gives Moses what he wants. Send someone else. Okay, Aaron is coming. This, by the way, is a major thread of divine wrath throughout the Bible. And it signs its New Testament expression in Romans 1, 18, 24, 26, and 28, where God reveals, and that word is to uncover, to disclose, apocalypto, uh, which we find in Apocalypse. <clears throat> and it, it's really a very definitive word. And so when he reveals his wrath from heaven, uh it's revealed three times in God giving people up. In other words, giving them their choices, giving them what they want. And likewise, you have God's grief at the scene of the flood that meets his wrath in Mark 3, 5. Jesus, looking around at them with anger, deeply grieved at their yielding heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. So you have there, uh, let's see, Anger, deeply grieved. That's the nature of God's anger when you talk about it in a personal way. And, and that makes the total sense to me. If God's anger is not selfish, it's not self-protected anger, it's anger for others. And most Hebrew words reflect human experience and treat with human anger The nose becomes anger because an angry person snorts through the nose. (coughs) Um, To burn becomes anger because people grow hot with rage, etc. The three words when used of God may be tied to another concept. And these three words are tied to heat or fire. They are used a lot to depict God's wrath. Not foolish, but a lot. Let's look at God's anger on Sinai. Uh, Sinai presents some of the biggest problems in the Old Testament. <clears throat> but I want to unpack this because it's extremely significant. So, I'll kind of hang on and, and don't make any judgment until you absorb all of this. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen the people how business they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may can grow hot against them and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. This is, this is a statement that comes after the worship of the golden calf. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and he said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster he planned to bring on his people. So, three points to consider. Why does God need Moses to let him alone so he can get angry? Angrier. Why would Moses standing before him condition his anger? I mean, if, a, if the most powerful being in the universe gets angry, how can anybody stop him? God seems rather easy to persuade not to kill the people that things are. He's really that red hot angry. Why is he so easy to persuade? And Moses sleeps for God's own reputation. Wouldn't God already be concerned about that? But why does that move God to change his mind? And so is it possible, and I get this from Ellen White, is it possible that God is testing Moses to see if he would fall for such a selfish thing as watching the people he leads perish and then become a father of a great nation? It, but to me, in looking at this story more recently, it almost seems as this theme is a parody of an angel God motif just think about that think about all the things I said up there above, or, and see if you don't think that I remember reading
1: like a I can't remember I remember reading a lot I last part of that and God repented of the evil he was about to do the people And it was just so shocking to me to read it that way. Maybe God repented, first of all, of the evil that he was about to do with people. And I just remember staring at that for a long time and thinking, there's something here I don't know. I
0: never discovered what it was. Well, let me me talk about repent. Repent, uh, again, every Hebrew word has a spectrum of meaning. And... On the one end, you have repentance, like, religious repentance, I did wrong. Uh, On the other hand, you have relence, to to relence from the evil. Uh, However, that doesn't let God off the hook because you have evil in there. And I don't know any way around that. Um, The the fact that the biblical writers portray God really in such anthropomorphic terms suggests that there is more behind the meaning than we can see. And, And the last slide on this, is going to be very helpful for them. Yeah. Yeah, if it's a parody. Yeah. 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 Well, that was a bit of a charade for the purpose of making the point. Nevertheless, Moses perceives God as angry and displays anger himself in spite of the false worship. After punishing the people, he offers to make atonement for them. By asking God to blot out of his name, God refuses and tells him to continue to lead the people. But on the day I visit, I will visit upon them in their stint. And you notice there's a little M-T. That's my translation because I don't like all the other versions. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: that word visit is extremely important and we'll come to it again and talk about it. God then announces He will not go with them, or I will consue, would consume you on the way, for you are a stiff people. This leaves Moses to plead extensively with God to go with them, and ultimately to ask to see God's glory. God tells Moses that He can only see His backside, not His face, because He would die if He saw His face. Now we're conditioned um, by our inheritance. Theologically, clear back to the Middle Ages and before, we're conditioned to read that as God is going to kill people who look at His face. That's not what this means. The development of God's fiery presence—this uh, is this is very, very important. Uh, Exodus nineteen, twelve, and thirteen. Uh, tells, God tells Moses to put a fence around Mount Sinai. No one is to go up on the mountain to touch it on death penalty. Uh, Exodus 19.21, God warns Moses for people not to break through to try to see the Lord, or many of them will fall dead. This is a warning of something that is going to happen in, inextricably. Uh, it is not something God does. Exodus 33.3.5, God states he will not go up with his people, lest he consume them on the way because they were a stiffness people. If I were to go with you, even for a single moment, I would destroy you. Is that because God is going to,
1: I can't take these people
0: Or is it because if I go with you for even a single moment, you'll go out of harmony with and you'll die? And in light of the text above, uh, where many of them will fall dead, it seems to be the matter. Moses begs God to go with them and ask to see God's glory. Does Moses want to experience it, to understand why it seems so lethal? The Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Here, goodness is synonymous with glory. And proclaim before you the name of the Lord. And I wish, I probably should have done my own translation for this here. I get really annoyed that we have never broken free of the inheritance of the Latin Vulgate. Actually, the inheritance, I should say, of the Greek Septuagint. Um, You know that the Jews, when they came back from exile, were so fearful of breaking the law that they decided to put a real big fence around it of all kinds of rules. And one of the rules was never to pronounce the name of God lest you take it in vain. So they substituted Adonai, which is Hebrew for Lord, Master, and what have you, for Yahweh. And and so when the Septuagint translated to the Old Testament, and the Septuagint translators substituted "Kyria" for Yahweh. Yahweh in no way needs Lord or Master. Yahweh is the self-existent one, the one who is who he is. And it's a magnificent name. It's belittling to say, Period for Yahweh. It really takes His name in vain. It may, it lowers it in concept and perception. So everywhere you see those capital letters, Lord, it is really Yahweh. So I'm going to read this. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yahweh said, "I will make all my goodness pass in front of you, and I'll proclaim before you the name Yahweh." I will be kind to whoever I wish to be kind, and I will have compassion on whomever I wish to have compassion. But the Lord said, You can't see my face because no one can see me and live. The Lord said, Here is a place beside the rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will set you in the gap in the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back, but my face won't be visible. This is very exciting stuff, by the way. Yes.
1: I can remember being in half bunkers
0: you when know, I was <laughs> a girl, and talked by our captors twice, and that. Right, for so the past you your saying you're lost, in the sanctuary. still so reading the story, and making it, thinking as if it just still happened if you were irrelevant in the sanctuary
1: that God finds the writer with the story. <laughs> and
0: being by nature, a business child, I can remember <laughs> that, <laughs> that burden of immediate rebellion, and they wanting to go, oh yeah, let me see. <laughs> But I
1: think not remember
0: seriously having this story assigned to in our little church sanctuary. So, awesome. I'm glad I didn't have your, I'm glad I didn't have your pathfinder teacher. <laughs> <clears throat> Let's look at the significance of this. This means that God's face is more destructive than his backside. This is extremely important in understanding the ancient Near East. <clears throat> Jacob hopes to see Esau's face and find forgiveness. Faith is forgiven. After his wrestling with the angel, Jacob calls the place to kneel because he saw God face to face and his life has been, had been spared. So Jacob recognizes there's something about God's faith face that, face that is potentially lethal. He may not understand why. When Pharaoh orders Moses and Aaron to leave, Moses tells him, Very well, I will not see your face again. So wrath equals not seeing face. When Joab restores Absalom to Jerusalem, when he killed his brother Ammon for raping his sister Tamar, David says to Joab, He must go straight to his own house. He must not see my face. Anger means seeing my backside, not my face. When God's anger burns, He hides His face, and this text tells us this: "I will hide My face from them; they will have become nothing but food for their enemies, and so on." Um, so, hiding the face is again manifest anger. When the Lord makes His face to shine on you, He is gracious unto you. The famous prayer in number six twenty-five, a Babylonian phrase: "Turn back your neck." which you have turned away from me in anger. So turning the back, turning the neck, is anger. <clears throat> Shamash, son god of justice, who many days ago had become angered and had turned back his neck in anger on Babylonia. In the reign of Nabuathla, I'm sorry, I can't say that. King of Babylon, relearned it and turned his face back again. So graciousness of turning the face toward you, that side is wrath. So here's the conclusion. When a person, usually a king or deity, turned their face away from someone, it meant that they were angry with that person, and it could mean their death. When they showed their face to someone, it meant they were favorable toward them and be gracious. You get the significance of this. This means that when God says, my face you cannot see and you will live, he's he's turning this upside down, utterly. So, which is lethal, sin or God? When God passes before Moses, he pronounces his name, and that name includes a long list of attributes. Compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, full of chesed, kindness. In case you wonder what chesed is, it's a very hard word to translate in English. <coughs> My conclusion after studying it is that Keth is going beyond the Required way of dealing with something and showing additional, um, mercy. In other words, kind of moving outside the box. Uh, I'm not required to do this, but I'm going to do this because, uh, <clears throat> I want to show you Catholics. Faithfulness and forgiving. So where's that? Is it really in punishing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children? That's, uh, in almost any version you pick up now. And modern version punishing, uh, the word punishing is really visiting, and has a host of meanings that could just as readily mean administering the results of sin from one generation to the other. The the way it's construed in Hebrew is that it it does something to the sins of a person upon another person, so it hands over those sins to the next generation, not meaning. I'm going to arbitrarily punish you because, by the way, the Bible forbids that. In Deuteronomy and in Ezekiel, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself with Stephen's life. Nope. So, what it seems to me is that the consequences of your choices, your bad choices, are going to fall on next generations. And we know that's true. Look at alcoholism, for example. Look at child abuse as another example. Uh, these are examples that do affect the next generation. So, here's my belief. If God's faith means mercy, compassion, kindness, and forgiveness, but will not withhold the consequences of anyone's sinful actions, there's no wrath in this uh, characterization of God. But will not, as us see. Yet, if you see God's face as you die, then this can only mean that it is sin, not God's face, that destroys human beings. What it also means is that it is God's love in its most compassionate, merciful form that is destructive to sin. And so it implies that all sinful acts stem from attitudes and motives that are unloving and indeed destroy love and its corollary trust. These actions are more closely related to anger than to love. Love is life, and when one chooses adopts that one chooses death. Because God's love gives life, when it meets someone who despises that love, the natural result is death. So because Moses himself was sinful, he could only bear God's backside, that is, is turning away his wrath. Now let's deal with it in the sanctuary. Yes. I
1: see that
0: I see that as a euphemism in that context. Otherwise you have a direct contradiction of what God says to Moses. Uh, they saw God. He saw God in human form, maybe face to face, but not in His glory, like, like Jacob in the night of wrestling. He he sees God face to face. Well, he's not wrestling with God in, in His magnificence and glory. He'd been, he'd been, yeah, and they but they see they see kind of a vision of God. It seems to me, Um I don't think I don't think they literally see his face. I think I think they have to take context and and everything into in, in consideration.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, let's look at this in the sanctuary. Does God need sacrifices in blood? Um Samuel to obey is better than sacrifice Micah do justice love mercy and walk humbly with God cease to do evil learn to do good Isaiah uh, did these sacrifices assuage God's anger and the word shipper is used to report atone can mean to appease anger and I give you two examples here these are both places where it means clearly appeasing Then you have the offerings that are labeled a pleasing order to the Lord. Uh, The offerings are also labeled the food of God, which is in common with ancient Near Eastern practices. These are all major voice kinds of terms. Though words for anger are not mentioned throughout the ritual text for sacrifices, neither is divine anger mentioned in ritual texts elsewhere in the ancient Near East. Yet it is clear that ancient Mesopotamian Hittite gods were placated by these offerings, although I'm going to come to a scholar who believes after studying the Hittite materials that the anger part got lost. Uh, it was originally that way, but it came to mean more expiation than appeasement. Let's look at the Hebrew word hipper. Uh, scholars debate the origins of this word. Does it come from the Cadian kaphar to wipe off, to smear on? Uh, or does it resemble the Arabic kafara, to cover? Most currently lead toward the Akkadian meaning. But the Akkadian word never means to appease. The Babylonians possess other words for this. In other non ritual contexts, when kipper means to appease, it requires a direct object such as anger, you appease anger, you appease a person, you appease a face, or you appease him as pronominal subject. In ritual text, God is never the direct object of this verb, rather it receives a prepositional object, usually all meaning uh, upon or over, uh, with the atoned or their sin. This suggests that the word really infer- infers cleansing and thus should need to expiate when found in ritual text. Expiate more is, is the idea of taking care of the result and the, and the implications of sin. In the Septuagint, the translators render kipper with hilaskomai or derivative of it, meaning to propitiate. But it's got better. has shown that though in ancient pre-New Testament Greek, these terms were used to depict appeasement of angry deities, the Septuagint translators used an unconventional syntax for the term, yielding the sense expiate. He notes that many scholars recognize this, but surprisingly, nearly all scholars have failed to recognize that a similar semantic transition from propitiation to expiation had already taken place in the Hebrew use of Kippur. So this happened in the Hittite literature is what he's arguing. It also happened in Hebrew uh, in the way that they talk about atonement. In summary, Fader concludes, Whereas the former propitiation consists of flaking the anger of an offended party, the latter expiation pertains to undoing the ill effects of a wrong committed. The latter depicts, seems to involve a more mechanistic, depersonalized conception in which blood guilt automatically brings retribution unless it is properly addressed by the perpetrator and the community. Note the word automatic. Uh, this is this is the closest you get to natural consequences in terms of ancient Near Eastern thought. Um, his view is supported by the fact that some of the terms for punishment are words for sin, and terms such as he will bear his sin seems to indicate a causal nexus or inevitability between sin and punishment. So, in other words, this is not something, the way this is construed, it's not something God is doing, and therefore you don't need to appease his anger but it is something that sin causes, and what the sacrifices are intended to do is help take care of that. Just let me say this in a nutshell about kipper. Uh, the reason I argue that it does not mean appeasement is because God is never the object of it in any way. Other explanations of appeasement include that Milgram suggested the phrase, pleasing order to the Lord no longer had a propitiatory meaning in Leviticus. But uh, Septuagint mentions the terms, sweet savor, while rabbis explain its pleasure, and its usage is limited to idolatrous worship, where it is used figuratively. Psalm 50, to 13 counters the claim that God uses the offerings for food. These verses represent the minor voice since prevailing culture understood all offerings to be food for the God. Another suggestion is the term to soften the face of someone who's angry, but in contextual usage, it always means primarily to implore. Uh, you can't construe it to be appeasement. Divine anger can be primarily a motif of Mesopotamia, the Hittites, and the Hebrews. Among the Hittites, Vader shows that appeasement came to mean expiation. In Mesopotamia... A stronger case than any made for its retention. The question then remains whether the Hebrew Bible really retained the content. And, and what I'm arguing is that the, the hardcore view of divine anger is most prevalent in Babylonian material, uh, throughout the, as of term, in terms of the ancient Near East. And the question is, is, the Bible more Babylonian than its neighbors? Because I've, I've looked through Hittite, I mean, sorry, not Hittite, but uh, Ugaritic texts, trying to find any reference to divine anger, and I have found none yet. That doesn't mean they're not there. I haven't found them. But it does seem that they're not as hard into God's anger as the Babylonians. No prayer exists in the Hebrew Bible in which a person prays for God to be appeased. The closest approximation is the plea that God relents a word used for repentance or change his mind. It's a significant since prayers are marked indicators of in ancient Mesopotamia of attempts to appease deity. In the Hebrew Bible, God is seen as the initiator of relations with humans and the giver of life and its necessities. This is a distinction between Israel and Mesopotamia, where the gods were dependent on a human slave for offering. So, the Bible keeps turning these uh, these Babylonian motifs upside down and, and uh, deals with them very opposite the way they do. In the Hebrew sacrificial system, the sinner usually shifts the life of the sacrifice, indicating a causal nexus between sin and death. Appeasement negates any direct connection between sin and death, declaring that deity is the cause of such death, thus requiring appeasement. I want to highlight um, this one. No prayer exists in the Hebrew Bible of, of appeasement because we will come to that full circle in a moment. Distinctions between Israel and Mesopotamia. Uh, Israelite offerings are very simple. No spices, no uh, herbs, no sweeteners, no additives, nothing that would make God's palate really enjoy his food. <laughs> Whereas in Mesopotamia, uh, the Babylonians used all of these things, you see, listed there. Um, they were wanting their gods to be appeased, you see, and that's the way they did it. Uh, the Babylonians sought to appease the anger of their gods, and, and I give you the words for that, and this is rarely done in Hebrew construct. The closest you get to it really is Ezekiel, is and it really doesn't mean that. In the context, in Babylonian usage, God's left when angry, but in the Old Testament, more often than not, God did not leave, but his people left him. The notable exception, of course, is in Jeremiah's time, that we get by Josephus. In Akkadian, two major verbs for wrath exist: agagus and azazu. And this is a very important thing that you need to keep in mind. Though often used synonymously, the former is used of a passing emotion while the latter refers to an inherent quality akin to strength and ferocity. So this is a character trait of the gods of Babylon. Um, both are extensively used with the gods as their subjects. By contrast, when delineating Yahweh's character, terms do not inc- use, do not include wrath or terms for power. The only closest you get to it is in Micah. He does not retain his anger forever. He doesn't. He is slow to anger and of great mercy. I mean, it's like backpedaling on anger. Uh, that's the closest you get. So here's some examples of what I just said. And Yahweh went by before him. We've already read that. There's no wrath in it. Uh, but Marduk. On the people he created for the fountain of life, he imposed the work of the gods so that they were calm. Creation and destruction, forgiveness and punishment, let it exist at his command. Let them look to him, kushu, the fierce yet judicious, angry yet relenting. God minded, his mood held in check. So, anger here is part of Marduk's nature. The fact that, that many entries, this is now where I come back to major and minor voices. The fact that many entries containing Akkadian words for anger and wrath pertain to the gods and kings suggest a very real perceptual basis for divine anger in the rise of kingship. And what I'm saying here, I'm just going to say it very really quickly, there seems to be a correlative between power and anger in the ancient Near East. I looked in, in the Chicago Atherian Dictionary at all the uses I'm I'm in the process of looking at all the uses for anger and you usually have an entry for gods and an entry for kings and they're usually about the same size and and, and looking to when historically these statements were made it appears that it's when the height of power in the neo assyrian period and the Neo-Babylonian period that you have the most references to divine anger so when kings are angry gods are angry and so on, and you can follow the same thing in the Hebrew Bible. Most of your references to anger, divine anger, in the Hebrew Bible are during the monarchy when the kings are sitting on the throne. So let's look at the Day of Atonement. Everything comes together when we look at the Day of Atonement. Uh, the context of the Day of Atonement is the dying of Nadab and Abihu while offering incense. The question is, did they die because God was angry and He smoked them? Or did they die because they, they sauntered into His presence? I think to appease Him, carelessly drunk, and they were in, they went into the most holy place. Contextually, these are all plausible. They went into the most holy place and God's presence consumed them. That makes the most sense. It, and, the, and the fire doesn't consume them in the sense of burning them up. They carry them out in their bodies, in their tunics. So, this raises the question the David atonement is supposed to answer. What does it take to come safely into the presence of God? If God's glory is essentially the physical manifestation of his love, if his wrath is not part of his character, but rather what happens when he lets people go, if sin is what causes death, not divine anger, and if God's love does not demand appeasement to forgive, then to appease God, as if he were angry, is to reject God's love, and to cut oneself off from his life-giving love and glory. If one did this in his immediate presence, then that result would be to and certain death. In other words, it is flaunting the love of God, most specifically, that brings death the day of atonement teaches these things um, sin must be gotten rid of from the people the only thing I want to highlight this because we've made an awful lot of fear out of the day of atonement the only thing the people could do to engage in this is to humble themselves that's all you could do on the day of atonement and they were to do it silently which is important for the next slide uh, and sin cannot abide in a sacred place in by God. It must lead by the means of a goat for Though so they could only humble themselves silently, neither in the Psalms nor in Leviticus 16 refer to priestly prayers or to hymns sung on this day. It was all done silently. This is in sharp contrast to the Babylonians and their festival. festival. On the fifth day, the high priest recites this prayer to Marduk, the patron god of Babylon. God of heaven and earth, determining are the face, my lord, my lord may calm. is holding mace and loop, my lord, my lord be calm. These are prayers of appeasement. And they say these lines over and over again. So who and what is the Saiza? And this is this is to me the most exciting part of this presentation. And you have several uh positions. He's a demonic figure according to Jewish tradition. He is the typological figure of Christ as the goat for Yahweh because he bears sin. Um, he represents Satan, the Seventh day position. If you go onto Wikipedia, some Seventh day Adventist has gotten arm there and explained this. <laughs> <laughs> Most scholars today hold the view that he is a desert demon or demonic figure. Interestingly, his name sounds similar to a Mesopotamian demon named Pazuzu, whose face is quite fearsome. For years, I have wrestled with the name of Zazel, that he represented a demonic figure, and therefore the Satan of the New Testament, I believe, but I didn't know what to do with his name. I tried various possibilities but failed to stand for the evidence. For years, after looking carefully at the word, I concluded that it was a metathesized form of two words, one coming from Akkadian, the other from Zykadian, but spelled like the Hebrew form, as and El, Angry God. I even taught this to my students, but I wasn't sure I was right, and about two years ago I stopped teaching. Then last year, we're looking at the Hebrew words for Azaz and and, oh, in Chaim uh, Ben Yosef Talwil's book, A Lexical Study of Hebrew with Akkadian Cognates, I saw a brief note on Azazel that referred me to Talwil's article. I quickly ordered it and read it. After spending pages on the Jewish tradition and history of Azazel, the demon, Talwil compared Azazel and the words surrounding it in Leviticus 16 with similar Akkadian and Ugaritic phraseology. He concluded, as I had, that Azazel's is a form of the Akkadian Azazu and Ael. And means fierce God. Remember that avy is the kind of anger, nushting that is characteristic of deity. So now for an Adventist question. And I love this this statement because to me, in Catholicism, where I'm going, Lord speaks to human beings in perfect speech, in order that the degenerate senses, the dull and earthly perception of earthly beings, may pr- comprehend its words. This is showing God's condescension. He meets fallen human beings where they are. The Bible, perfect as it is in simplicity, does not answer to the great ideas of God, for infinite ideas came out with perfectly embodied and finite vehicles of thought. Instead of the expressions of the Bible being exaggerated, as many people suppose, the strong expressions break down before the magnificence of the thought. though the ten men selected the most expressive language to which convey the truth of higher education. Sinful human beings. Can only bear to look upon a shadow of the brightness of heaven's glory. That to me is why you have so much wrath in your is God the Old Testament. In regards to the question about the act God in the sanctuary, He was used of it as a common law. But effort, whatever we have made a lot of female prisoners and a common law that whatever we are, sure what she should, what she is to do something and to start life. It's not something that God has done. It's something that is in it to it. Doesn't... Well, what, even, even, I read this recently and I've got to track down whether this is still acceptable scholarship because so many other things have influenced scholarship through the years. But, uh, I read recently that the history verb, which is the verb to cause things, which is often used with God destroying and, and so on, that it actually means to allow it doesn't just mean to cause it to happen. So, and, and again, uh, there's, there's part two and three of this discussion, but um we have only two minutes. Yes? Yeah. Oh,
1: it's interesting that we <coughs> don't like in the love of God, but we are bothered really by...
0: God when it comes to the anger anger. I think
1: it's our fear that drives us. Yeah. What well, I'm hearing you really um, working extensively with people who stand you
0: know, on... Disentangle their concept of God from their concept of their earthly father from their concept of God and the concept of anger being something that is
1: exclusive it to love, that it excludes any possibility of love. So, what would be the mental health burden? <laughs> Yes. I love the idea that someone who doesn't want I be I think you need a person. Like, every parent for a Oh, you know? you to not Why are you acting like that's something over? You know, I won't do that. Why are you acting To me, I
0: you're It filters down to every part of life. When a student comes, what can I do to make up a better grade? Or, uh, can I do extra credit? (laughs) Okay, what? doesn't make sense. (laughs) Um, Or, um, I I really am suspicious, and I don't know how to prove this, because it goes back way before the writing was invented. But if the earliest idolatrous worship was ancestor worship, it comes right out of the motif that, that is mentioned of the an angry parent. Uh, that whole anger thing begins probably with that worship. Depending on the reason you're being in God's
1: right? And this is all my question. I'm not that angry
0: person. I'm not like, and I'm not that kind of person. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, what I'm arguing, just to give this in a nutshell, is that all the references to divine wrath are largely the major voice. The ones that aren't show us what divine anger really is. But, okay, Father, we thank you that you are a God who is gracious, merciful, long suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. And you keep mercy for thousands, and you forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. We thank you that you uphold the laws of the universe, give us cause and effect, and order and beauty, because without these we would fall apart into chaos. We thank you that you are not like the gods of Mesopotamia, angry as part of your character and needing to be appeased. We pray that as we um, continue to move through the Bible, as we look at passages, that we may understand why the Bible says what it does when it does and be able to work past language to see you more fully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen.